Welcome to Whiskey Talk, Malts and Music, brought to you by the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, here in the vaults in Leith. My name is Vic Galloway, I'm a broadcaster, author, musician and music journalist and the idea of this podcast is to bring together single cast, cast strength whiskies and music. I ask creative people to pair up four drams with four pieces of music, we discuss their selections and we go off on tangents into their lives and careers. I hope you enjoy. Slanjava. Gemma Kearney, welcome to Malts and Music. Lovely to see you. Hello. Pairing up music and whiskey is a slightly odd esoteric concept how did you get on did you enjoy it it was slightly bizarre because i picked up the whiskey late because it was a classic i wasn't in when it got delivered i got sent some lovely little samples um and i would have loved to have had hours to sip and listen but i didn't so i was trying these whiskies at around midday in my flat in edinburgh feeling quite strange (laughs) drinking whiskey at that time of the day but i did enjoy the sentiment of the challenge and I love the idea that music is a sensory experience and that taste can invoke rhythm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you've chosen some excellent music which we'll get to as we go through the whiskies. and if you're experiencing these single cask, cask strength whiskies for the first time, they're quite different from even stuff that you can get single malts in supermarkets and shops and you know off licenses and so on. They are much stronger and just so much more flavoursome. So, do you, I mean, do you like whiskey? Is, it, is whiskey a... I'm unsure. I don't dislike it. I definitely have more of an appreciation for it since I've moved to Scotland, which was over a year ago. I feel like in the right scenario, the right spirits really do work. And whiskey is one of those things. I love Scotland a lot, hence me moving here. And I try to go on as many Scottish adventures as possible. And sometimes the elemental, epic, magnificent landscape that you find yourself in, or at least looking upon, does really work with a whiskey. Yeah, it's another sensory experience, isn't it? Um, landscape, weather goes perfectly. Let's, let's, let's charge into the first Shall one. Shall we? Shall we? Let's do it. So, I might be like quite like, sort of slurry by the time we get to the end. So Don't worry, everyone, everyone <laughs> takes it at their own pace. So we've got There's these quite lo- a lot of whiskey in front of me. I'm a little <laughs> bit nervous. Uh, we've got these lovely folders with uh, tasting notes and information on each one. The first one is part of the juicy oak and vanilla flavour profile, and it's called, beautifully, Taking the Pith. I love that. That's P-I-T-H. <laughs> um, a couple of the tasting notes. Pineapples, pears and bitter citrus arrived enthusiastically before almonds and walnut oil prepared the nose for licorice, cask char Mm. and leafy herbs. Mm. Green apples and mangoes on the palate (laughs) merged with banana and Turkish delight (laughs) as herbal notes returned with mixed nuts, coconut husk and charred oak. It does go on. It goes on. I can't believe this. These are brilliant though. I love them. Uh, The poetry behind tasting notes I I do think are quite hilarious it's quite hilarious some of the the ways to describe a taste which oh have a have, oh, a, right, let's have a nose oh yeah I can see why it's part of that that flavor profile juicy oak and vanilla Turkish delight for sure yeah or just straight up delightful yeah okay let's <laughs> have, the nose is fruity and rich but slightly slightly exotic I'm gonna I'm gonna have a sip all right hmm Oh, front of the mouth, lots of fruit, 
it's but, really impactful as a yeah. taste. Mm. It just fills your mouth like an explosion. It does. And um, for me, I'm getting the roof of, of the mouth is reacting particularly strongly to it. And then a slight kick at the back of the throat as well. Not all whiskies do that to me, but this one does, but not in an uncomfortable way. I like it. Yeah, me too. This is quaffable to the extreme. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's 15 years old. It's a space side. In fact, I think all four whiskies that we're going to try today are all space sides, but they're all quite different uh, in taste. Um, you've paired this up with Erica Badu. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about your love of Erica Badu and why this whiskey goes well. So for whoever is watching or listening, it's important to note that I didn't know the tasting notes, the name of the whiskey. I was sent them kind of labelless, and I just tasted and responded. And um, I found this particular taste without knowing anything about it quite earthy. And when I think of earthy sounds, I think of mama earth and i think of an earth mother and my favorite earth mother is erica badu yeah absolutely i mean um we're talking i mean the, the track you've chosen on and on is on the debut album baduism yeah which came out in 97 and i i remember it at the time and absolutely falling in love with it and it still stands up today it really does but she's a character above and beyond the songs i mean she's a brilliant singer great songwriter but as you say an earth mother and very strong and opinionated and forthright and takes no si s-h-i-t i should say <laughs> uh yeah um, she won't let anyone take the piff out of her no that's for that's for sure <laughs> so many years ago when i was on bbc one extra i did a documentary about erica badu because she was my favorite artist it was simple as that i didn't really think about much more than i was a massive fangirl and I got to interview her and speak to different talking heads about her from Mary J. Blige uh, to, I can't even remember who else, but just like people that wanted to respond to the epicness of, of Erica Badu. And interestingly, a few years later, when they had the 20th anniversary of Baduism, I wanted to reversion the documentary to put out on BBC Six Music, because mm -hmm. I'm now doing a lot more work on BBC Six Music. I know that you are a comrade of that yeah. particular network. And um, a lot of the people that I was speaking to in, in that network, in that, because I think they're all kind of brothers and sisters, I see this kind of, these networks as a family, a lot of people didn't really know Erica Badu's repertoire or, or the, all of the amazing music that she's put out. And I was quite shocked because for me, she's one of the most alternative artists on a kind of mainstream ricocheting between different genres who always offers something different. It's, it's Afrofuturism before that was really coined the term. Uh, it's neo-soul for some, it's got jazz elements, there are hip-hop beats, she can rap. I just find Erica Badu absolutely metaphysically mind-blowing. And on and on is the classic from the Baduism album. Yeah, Apple Tree's good. Um, I can't remember the third single, it's really good as well. Something about the game. Um, that's, that's a fantastic track as well. But the whole record flows perfectly. And it just encapsulated a moment I remember at the time. I, I love D'Angelo as well. Yes. I mean, she was tight with him, probably still is, I would imagine. And, and there was just, again, that, yeah, neo-soul thing coming through. It, like, real musicianship, real songwriting. Uh, but also character. It's, it's not like the musicianship and the technique 
gazumps the ideas. The ideas are king as well. There's some lovely stories about when she works, how she collaborates. And I think that Baduism was made in New York alongside loads of other super cool artists of the time. And they were just jamming, experimenting. And for me, that's like the what dreams are made of and i do remember when i interviewed her and she was talking about a particular anecdote um working with jay diller the late producer who again was so innovative and, and known for it and she was talking about their relationship and the banter in the studio and the laughter and the flirtation and how at the time she was in a romantic relationship with the rapper common and th- there's just this kind of beautiful ecosystem around Erica Badu and you can hear that in every song that she's ever put out yeah well it's a great choice and um, as I'm nosing and sipping this whiskey and enjoying it I, I, I feel it goes really well yeah actually yeah yeah I mean you know it's such a subjective thing this you know some, someone might choose a you know, a folk tune or a heavy metal tune or something. Uh, but actually, I think that's a really good pairing. Um, tell, tell us, you've you mentioned, you, you're so busy, Gemma, and you've done <laughs> so much. You, your, your CV is amazing. Radio, TV, you've, you're writing books now. You know, you're an activist. You do all sorts of different things. But you've already mentioned you moved to Edinburgh. Tell me a little bit about why, why Edinburgh? Because the media, it's London, to a lesser degree, Manchester. Scotland's... You know, it's it's down the pecking order in terms of, you know, where to live, where to connect to the world, perhaps, or as seen as that. Although Glasgow, I think, is a real epicentre. I live in Edinburgh. I love Edinburgh. It's very difficult to leave. You've moved up here. Why? Well, I was going to say that to you. You know, why do you think someone might like to live in Edinburgh? You are... An Edinburgh, how do you, what would you describe yourself? An Edinburgher, maybe. An Edinburgher. Right. Uh, <laughs> but you know, you live here. Why do you live here? Well, I, I can tell you straight away. It's um, a beautiful city architecturally. Um, I really like, actually, even though it's a bit windy and cold, I really like the climate. There are really clear skies on the east coast of Scotland. Classic Scottish. Actually uh, likes the cold. Well... <laughs> It's sunny. I mean, even while we're recording this, it's sunny outside. Yeah. Um, Glasgow's a bit more overcast and a bit uh, greyer. Scot- um, Edinburgh's a bit more kind of zingy and mm. it, it is cold. But And also, it's just a nice, relaxed place to live. The crime levels are low. It's th- It ticks all the boxes. Mm. I've got a nice flat that I enjoy living in. Yeah. I've got friends and family here. But it, it's, it's I can hit the countryside really quickly. I can hit the beach really quickly. I can get down to London really quickly or Glasgow. So in a nutshell, loads of different reasons, but it's just a really chilled out, nice place to live. Is that? I think that you have definitely touched on a lot of points that I can relate to as to why I'm here. I always say that my heart lines brought me here. So I am Scottish as well as Jamaican, as well as British, as well as a citizen of the world. It's really hard to define identity, but... My grandparents were both from Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Scottish culture has a resonance um, that is quite hard to get away from, even if if I didn't grow up in Scotland, I do feel Scottish. Um, and during the year of 2020, it was quite a seismic year for me in many, many ways. It was for many people, but I had a lot of time to reflect. Um, I was dealing with a bereavement. I was by the sea down south. I'd already moved out of London. Things were really quite, in some ways, quite 
mystic, you know, like heavy stuff, like quite spiritual life stuff. And I fell in love, which spun me from a, a negative space into something completely different. And it made me a lot more hopeful about the future, despite the state of everything. And we had a lovely opportunity to talk about, you know, where our dream take us and where we would love to live. And I realised, you know, that this is hugely lucky and quite a unique experience and very unexpected for me. And we both have Scottish heritage, despite the fact that Cameron is American. Um, and we just sort of felt moved. Mm-hmm. We just sort of went northwards. We don't have the responsibility of children. We both have jobs that could be anywhere. We felt really humbled to that. And then it gave us an opportunity to really work out where might suit us. Because people mm-hmm. always ask me, you know, I'd moved to Margate, for example, and I'd moved out of London anyway, and people would often contact me saying, you know, is it a good place to live? Would it work for me? Is it a good place for me to send my children to school? And I'd be like, I don't know. It's very much down to the individual mm-hmm. as to what you see in your eyes. Like what you wake up to every day is really like up to you um, as to whether it feels good. And Scotland does that, like you say, architecturally, it's stunning. The, like how pleasant it is doesn't get boring. Yeah. To be somewhere that makes you content is, is a very beautiful thing mm-hmm. and not something that I've really experienced so much before. I, I experienced it when I was by the sea in Margate, but when I was in the town, it was still small and there was still quite a lot of socioeconomic issues that were quite hard to, to work through whilst living there full time. And then here in Edinburgh, I appreciate like a difference in vibe, I feel like Scottish politics align in some ways with some of my with some of like my values, and it, it feels like there's an importance when it comes to progression, and I'm and I'm very progress led, and also just the nature. And there was a point a couple of summers ago, I was um, exec producing a punk musical called Parakeet as part of Edinburgh Fringe, and at the end of the run, which had been really intense. After the fringe had finished, we were sitting on Portobello Beach. It was a rare sunny day here in Edinburgh. I was with the cast, some really good friends of mine. And we looked around us and it was idyllic. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wait a minute, we're in a city that is cosmopolitan, that is international. We are near a, an airport if you know you need to go somewhere far. And I'd done a lot of traveling with work. You can get to London quite easily. I love the overnight train, for example. I love the sleeper. And we're on a beach. What? Well, this is when you were talking Margate. I was thinking, well, we've got beaches left, right, and centre around here. And if you if you get a bit of height in Edinburgh, I got Carlton Hill or Arthur's Seat or the Crags or any of the. Careful! The, I broke my leg third day living here up Arthur's Seat. I was going to ask you about that as well. <laughs> but I mean, that aside, breaking a leg aside, if you do, you know, get some sort of height in the city, it's coastline, it's it's beaches as far as the eye can see. It's it's bridges and beaches and Fife across the water. It's so beautiful. Scotland is breathtaking. I always love it when I meet friends from London or from the south uh, off the train or whatever, and they come out. And if it is sunny, which fingers crossed it is, they step out of the station and they go, wow, it's beautiful. I think they're expecting hairy Highlanders with claymores and kind of, you know, really (laughs) depressing pebble-dashed housing. And actually, it's spectacular architecture, greenery, a lot of greenery in Edinburgh Mm. as well. I really like places that are themselves. You know, they don't change too much unless 
and unless it's positive change, you know, I feel like there's something like these big solid walls, for example, they prevent um, uh, like a, a flimsiness. Mm. <laughs> I feel quite grounded yeah. in in an amongst the architecture of Scotland. I quite like that. Good, and and you and as you say, you have uh, Scottish heritage with. This whiskey has certain Scottish heritage as well. Yeah, and my granddad would be proud. Yeah, exactly. Um, your granddad would be proud of you sipping this single cast off, listening to Erica Badu as well. A perfect <laughs> choice. I think we, we should maybe move on to dram number two. Look, see, this is the trouble. Some of the some of the guests <laughs> are very rest, you know restrained and have a couple of sips. I'm almost finished this one. Do you know what? I'm just going to go for it. Mm. Absolutely delicious. Uh, taking the pith was our first dram. Um, Gemma, you, you, you mentioned Erica Badu for that dram. What kind of music did you first get into then? What was, what was the stuff that was around you growing up? Um, it was a real eclectic mix, which is a complicated answer, but one that I'm really proud of. I think that growing up in the 90s meant lots of things. Some things I look back and think, what? And I'm quite annoyed about And other things I feel really quite... <laughs> I don't know, inspired by it. One of those things is the the difference in pop culture that there was. You know, that I remember looking at the charts um, in 1999 in terms of the most sold records, the top 10 most sold records in 99. Whilst I was on air at Radio 1 doing the same thing, I can't remember what year it was, but it might have been, say, for example, 2012, like in the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I was finding the records that I was talking about as in the the more recent best-sold records of a year, a little bit samey. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see what it would have been like in 99, so I literally searched whilst I was live on air to have a look. And I really noticed that the 90s equivalent of the most popular tunes were just so much more random in genre. Mm-hmm. And it, it felt good because it cemented a feeling that I was having that... I, I think we were more collectively exposed to this kind of kind of glitch in the matrix in the 90s. And I don't know how else to describe it. It was very eclectic. Yeah. I mean, look, there's me talking about Erica Badu and, and having, uh, you know, immersed myself in Baduism and, and D'Angelo and also all sorts of other artists, neo-soul, hip-hop, funk, reggae, you know, drum and bass, all of these things, while also being a fan of punk rock, mm. grunge, you know, Britpop, you know. I, I, I'm an eclectic music listener, and I always have been. And I think the 90s was that perfect era. And I think pop culture showed that too. It wasn't just if you are, you know, old enough to go clubbing, which I wasn't in 1999. I was in year nine at school. But fashion, magazines, pre internet it it reflected a wide spectrum of culture to me anyway Mm -hmm. i mean i might be being an optimist but it felt like like you say you could listen to a hip-hop record or an indie record and then that would be normal yeah i I think things are a bit more fragmented and a bit more in their own silos nowadays right i'm i'm into this kind of music i mean i mean i also think that normal people just not media people or taste makers or anything like mm. that. I think a lot of people do just have their 
you know, streaming platform, the Spotify, you know, playlist, and it is eclectic. I don't think people are quite as tribal as perhaps they were in the 60s, 70s, 80s. The 90s was, it broke the mold though. Let's move on to drag okay. number two. Uh, talking of breaking the mold, uh, this one is, is called Gobstopper. It's part of the spicy and sweet uh, flavor profile. It's a nine year old space side again. It's 63% this one. Woo. Um, and I'm going to do some of the uh, tasting notes as well. The neat nose confirmed to us that this distillery often produces a deceptively weighty distillate. Uh, we've got big aromas of wet plaster, chalk duster. Wet plaster. I know. <laughs> chalk duster, starched linens, uh, lemon verbena, uh, stone fruits and tonic water. Some water brought out lychee cordial, lemon meringue and rich barley sugars. It's called Gobstopper. Let me have a nose of this. What? Are you getting the plaster? A little bit, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's making a little, it feel little, very little bit. That industrial. Sort of, like sort of chalkiness I'm getting slightly on the nose. But also, it, it, it does have it that sweetness. It smells amazing, too. I doesn't just, it? Doesn't yeah. it? Right, let's have a go. Oh. Oh, it's very different from our... Uh, I mean, this is it. They're all Speyside whiskies, and this is completely different from the taking the pith. Um, you paired this one, talking of eclecticism, uh, with the Langen band um, and Winter Song, uh, which is a fantastic piece of music. Tell me about your relationship with them. How did you discover these guys then? So this is a recent find. My uh, connection to the Langen band was... Uh, it was on my birthday, um, I went to the Highlands and I stayed in a shepherd's hut and it was lovely. I like to be off grid. I like to run around just in freedom around a fire, have a dance. And I stayed on a farm style place, quite hard to put into words what Inscrack is. And I hope that I pronounced that right. But you can stay either in a shepherd's hut or a log cabin or a converted vehicle of some sort or an estate house. And there are sheep, there is a main bar, there is a gin distillery. And I got an email from the owner that as we were arriving saying, oh, sorry for the last minute invite, but we're having a party. And I said, this is absolutely perfect. It's my birthday. Yeah. <laughs> so it suddenly becomes my birthday party. Yeah. And the Langham Band were performing that evening. Right. It was just so fun yeah and I haven't really experienced that part of the Cairngorms before I've driven through but to be immersed in it and to stay for a few evenings as we did and also to party there it just felt so Scottish yeah um, and so Celtic and with the Langham band there as well, playing the instruments whilst we danced around a fire. And I was offered, despite it being a gin distillery there, some very strong whiskey later that evening, surrounded by bohemian artists and writers, and it just felt fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, and um, I mean, people can go and search out the Spotify playlist of all of the all of the guests that we've had on Malt and Music chosen tunes for all of the drams we put them all on a, a continually growing playlist and if you're listening to this podcast on spotify you'll be able to hear the tune as well but in case you haven't got that far they're a kind of they're traditional music right they're a, a folk band they throw in obviously celtic influences but bits of gypsy and flamenco and balkan influences as well um yeah and 
this is a particular, I mean, it's, this, it's almost got bits of progressive rock and things in there, really complex arrangements, but beautiful, incredible musicians as well. Yeah, it was so much fun, honestly, to find that on my birthday. Yeah. I really was in my element. And you know what? A lot of people think, you know, some of the music pairings we've had, you know, whiskey doesn't go with this music or that music. <laughs> but if, if there was a music designed to go well with whiskey, it could well be the Langham Band. Definitely. And go to Inscrack as well and stay in the Shepherd's Hut and get in the river. We were in ice melt waters the next day getting over our hangovers. That's it. That's the best way, isn't it? It was awesome. We had, um, I, I don't even know what type of sauna it was, but it's, it's like on some sort of cart it mm. probably would be to transport hay but it'd been converted into a sauna on the edge of a river i mean it was absolutely beautiful and the, the sky at night there is oh absolutely enchanting uh, the thing is for people who are maybe listening or watching that haven't been to scotland this is what it's like every day right <laughs> <laughs> it's never depressing or gray or cold or horrible <laughs> it's just people partying and listening to traditional music no that I mean, the thing is, you can do that pretty much any any day of the week if you really want. You can search it out. And I think a lot more people are doing that, even people who live within Scotland, for example, you know, not just tourists coming from afar. So, yeah, what a brilliant experience. Yeah, it was fantastic. And it was really nice to discover the Langham Band. Yeah. Well, I think this is a great, a great choice. And I think, I mean, it could go with any whiskey, let's be honest. But this is this is far fuller body than our last one. Mm. It's got. It's part of the spicy and sweet flavour profile. It's much spicier to me. I mean, it's setting my mouth alight. But it has that underlying sweetness as well. Um, yeah, I, mm. I, I, I really like this. I, I think taking the pith, uh, our first dram was a bit more sort of quaffable. But this, this is a, a deeper, richer dram. I think. Do you think? I mean, maybe you actually know rather than just think. <laughs> but what? was the traditional use of whiskey do you think it was to create conversation or to think and look at the stars and contemplate like what what's the history behind the the, the pleasure side of whiskey? i wish i wish i knew exactly um our experts at the scotch malt whiskey society would be able to tell you i think it's a bit of all of this mm. i mean you've also got to think of it as a bit like moonshine as well I mean, yeah. it, was, it was people uh, making the, the, this amber nectar with whatever they had handy barley um you know just the basics in the fields it's water it's time water and grain basically yeah but i, th I think it's it is maybe escapism it's enhancing the landscape it's in and you know if you've been working hard in fields and forests and mountains for you know a week on end you maybe want a couple of strong ones of these to, <laughs> to relax at the weekend. I mean, I, I, there'll be all sorts of things. I think there will be maybe psychoactive properties in it as well. Drinking whiskey and being in nature and, and ha having out-of-body experiences, which it sounds like you, you had. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty fun. Yeah. But I, I, yeah, I'm interested in this idea of pleasure and inspiration and escapism too. I think that we need to know how to curate our pleasure and our joy um, in a way that doesn't feel like you're going to get berated or that you lose control, but that it is, it's something that supplements and enhances life. And I, I feel like whiskey, for me, feels like a very rural drink in a mm -hmm. way. Like I, I 
it keeps you warm, you know? Yeah. If you're outside enjoying the extremities of weather or the northern lights of which we got a tiny flash of. I mean, I'm exaggerating. It was like a bit of green in the sky, but yeah. I was very excited. Drinking whiskey does complement that. Oh, without a doubt. I, I completely agree. Um, now, without going into absolutely everything that you've ever done work-wise or life-wise, um, you have accomplished lots of different things and you're continuing to do so. But it, it kind of started, I, I, I've read somewhere that you went to the Brit school and that was a, a game changer. That was a like a, a sort of seismic experience for you. It completely changed everything. Definitely. Describe what Did you sort of know you were going to be a performer all your life? Again, thinking about the concept of escapism is quite appropriate because I think I wanted to escape certain things in life. Um, without being too deep or heavy, I think everybody experiences that as they're coming of age in different ways. And knowing that there was a place that I could go to where you were able to express yourself that might be different to this kind of path of convention that it seems can be easily be laid out for a lot of people, particularly women, I I felt really invigorated even at the age six at the age of sixteen to be able to travel an hour and a half every day as which is what I did um, to be around people from all walks of life that wanted to learn different disciplines from dance to set design to music to media studies to theatre which is what I studied it was really quite the shift from being at uh, an all-girls secondary school which was quite disciplined and and in many ways quite problematic suddenly I felt free so inhibitions were down if someone was musical they let everyone know that they were musical if someone <laughs> yeah. was good at doing impersonations and silly voices they would do that if someone was a dancer they would it dance. was like fame it yeah, was well, yeah <laughs> well I, I didn't I didn't do that per se but I I as a teenager, I became part of the National Youth Theatre um, mm. and went down to, uh, living in Scotland, went down to London and stayed in Tufnell Park for a summer. Fun. And it was far more diverse, you know, ethnically, culturally than, you know, my grandparents lived in London, so I knew London a bit, mm. but l going on this course and meeting these people. And again, everyone had a sort of innate talent of some description and they felt like they wanted to share it with the world and it was a game changer for me as well mm. even that summer I went back and started a drama workshop with the younger kids at my school amazing and it, it was it was a real experience how enriching is it for the soul you mentioned diversity mm. so the truth of diversity is a word that gets bandied around a lot and I think sometimes it's a bit co-opted by I don't know people that, with marketing jargon but that sense of diversity from a young age so just seeing different people represented but also being part of the same world um and being able to flourish and be themselves and to and to talk to different people with different backgrounds is truly enriching oh it's without a doubt i mean um my family my father was an expert in arabic and and we traveled i was born in the middle east and you know i have uh, you know i have indian members of my family you know it's we're a very 
diverse family mm-hmm. and 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 I have had a really good experience a life experience that I think that many of my friends haven't had and of course they're they're now going into having those experiences but I feel really privileged and lucky to have been able to have different languages and cultures and um you know dances and foods and yeah. you know uh, and, and the ability to travel a little bit as well and see p- different parts of the world it is by definition you know mind altering and opening you know i think the best culture is mixed culture yeah and i i do sometimes feel overwhelmingly worried about this idea of separation and dividing and individuality and like a quite individualizing stuff in a way that we close down these walls for this sort of false sense of safety whereas when we share the greatest things can be achieved and experienced and um yeah I mean I feel like a product of that Mm -hmm. being mixed race I can't get away from that it's in my DNA to share culture yeah well and uh, even within two drams during this podcast we've had Erica Badu and the Langham Band (laughs) which I I just think totally outlines what we're doing here um just for the sake of I've got a feeling you and I could talk for about three hours <laughs> six hours on we've got this a podcast. lot of whiskey in front of us yeah so. exactly let's let's move on i do you know what for the first time not that this dram isn't absolutely spectacular but i'm just for the sake of my own liver <laughs> I'm, no, I'm, go, I'm gonna put this one down and move on i'm gonna have a little palate cleanser with the uh yeah water we've got here. some water thank goodness Excellent couple of drams, excellent couple of tunes. And we can add water to the whiskey as well, Of course, well, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, in fact, yeah. I might do that. Well, try it neat first. Okay. So we move on to Sticks and Stones, which is uh, spicy and dry. Different flavour p- profile once again. It's a 10-year-old, again, Speyside. It's 59%. And, um, right, yeah, let's, let's do a couple of the tasting notes. An elegant and aromatic, uh, an aromatic nose of sunflower oil, shoe polish, new furniture, lightly oily rags from a toolbox, steel wool, canvas, and earthy turmeric, dry and crisp like a well-aged Loire Chenin. Wow. I know. Um, with water, we found green twigs, earthy potting sheds full of smashed clay pots, wow. plain cereals, and limestone. Again, just gorgeous poetic. in a way. I yeah. really do love it. I like that. With whiskey, it's, it feels like you could throw some quite like more gritty references. Yeah, there's this kind of sense of I mean steel wool yeah. and oily rags. From I a mean, toolbox. in many ways, it's quite masculine, but it's also just like it's got this kind of grrr yeah. <laughs> to the description. Whereas my 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 boyfriend works in coffee and they're, they're often talking about different flavours and a lot of them is more kind of, I feel like the descriptions are like foodie flavours, like, mm. oh, I feel hints of chocolate or yeah. orange or marshmallow, whereas this is just straight up clay pots. Yeah. <laughs> although, although some of them, it, it, it really depends on the whiskey, of course, because mm. some of them are far more delicate. Um, I mean, the, the, the flavour profiles, um, young and sprightly, Sweet, fruity, and mellow. A lot of those, you know, sort of lighter flavor profiles are a lot more feminine, perhaps a lot more fruity and a lot lighter, and so on. Not to say that being feminine has to be light <laughs> and fruity, but you know I'm what I'm trying to say. Um, Though yeah. I would definitely throw a pot in yeah. a sort of primal therapeutic way. Yeah. <laughs> Smash clay pots and then drink a whiskey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, mate, this is the one to do it with. 
Um, the nose actually it doesn't say those things to me. I don't know about you. Um, I'm not getting oily rags and so on. I, I may on the, when I taste it, the nose is quite, um, it's quite nondescript in a way, especially compared to the last two we've had, for mm, me anyway. Yeah, it, it definitely doesn't punch in the same way Yeah. than taking the piff did. Yeah. But that's not a bad thing. It's almost smoother. Yeah, it, it's got a very smooth nose. Let's, let's, let's try a sip. Oh. Wow. So really smooth at the front of my mouth, and then I'm getting the oily rags and the steel wool and so on as it goes further back, as almost that slightly metallic mm. earthiness. Mm -hmm. What do you think, yeah? I like. It's a bit dangerous because I feel like this goes down a bit more easily. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are on dram number three, Jeff. Yeah, okay. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> As we go as we go through these, uh, they go down <laughs> even even better uh, quite often. So you've gone for uh, I love this one, right? You've gone for George Benson <laughs> and Give Me the Night uh, from 1980 from the album of the same name, a huge global hit, top ten all over the world, if I remember. I hope wherever you are, if you know the song, that you're actually singing it out loud because you just can't not. If you know the song, it's so catchy. Oh yeah, it's so just funky. Give me the night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and. Um, I mean, this, the, I probably in 1980, what would I have been, eight years old? So I, I would have um, I, I would have been unaware of it, although I probably would have heard it on the radio and stuff. Mm. But when I became aware of this, I probably would have gone, it's too cheesy. It's too, you know, <laughs> I love it now. Absolutely yeah. love it. A friend of mine went to see George Benson in concert. Only, I think it was just before the lockdown, actually. And... He, he, he was utterly blown away. He was kind of expecting it to be a bit showbiz cheese, but um, the, he said the guitar playing, which of course is his main, his main instrument, he's a great singer as well, but his main instrument is the guitar. He said his jaw hit the floor. He was just utterly astonished. And he said, yes, there were elements of cheese, yeah. but it was just one of the best concerts he'd ever been to. And he's seen a lot. That's nice to yeah. know because um, George Benson is... Basically. Maligned sometimes as well, you know. He's yeah. maligned as being cheesy. Yeah, but he's brilliant. I mean, he's a part of my history in a way because my dad not only is a massive fan, which is how I was introduced to this song, because I was born in '85, so I wasn't born when this song came out. But my dad also really used to look exactly like him. Right. Okay. And is a guitar player. Wow. <laughs> and was in a band. <laughs> Called the High Flames, if anybody knows them. The High Flames? Yeah, Midlands, mid-80s. <laughs> they used to jam with UB40. Um, cool. And, yeah, my dad looked so much like George Benson that people used to wonder, like, ask him if he was, and then he's got, you know, quite a British voice. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think that that kind of sass, that style, everything around that kind of scene. And yes, perhaps cheesy, but also kind of smooth and cool. Smooth, yeah. Um, is, is just very much part of like my aspirations growing up. And also effortless. Effortless in, in the songwriting, the singing. The, uh, it's produced by Quincy Jones, so oh, it sounds I mean, amazing. Come on. Yeah. The best. Yeah. And uh, wh why this whiskey and, and George then? Because of this smooth. Because it's smooth. <laughs> the nose is smooth. I'm, and now I'm, I'm hearing the song and I'm, yeah, I can feel it now. It's, uh, I mean, this is spicy and dry. 
but I suppose there's a smoothness to it as well. I'm imagining my dad in our living room in Balham, South London, early 90s, and me just really looking up to him, actually, because he just seemed so cool. We used to sing Daddy Cool at him, and he had a vinyl collection. He would always have, like, perfectly gleaming sunglasses to choose from before like he left the house um or a different like big kind of blinging watch and a jerry curl and he just was so smart and sophisticated and glamorous to me and would put on a george benson and him and, and his friends would just kind of listen to it and perhaps drink something like this from a crystal glass yeah. and chat and they, everybody it's when everybody used to still smoke and there was big crystal ashtrays you know yeah. it was just a vibe and I used to just think it was just so cool yeah <laughs> it's funny you describe the way he looks and his clothes and so on because you kind of started in fashion as well and fashion's a, a, an important part of your life still to this day you always look amazing so I mean how did you get into all of that and what what sort of triggered that love well I went to drama school and I think that the theatricality of life actually is is one of the most important things to me when it comes to art. Like I, I think art or the arts as a whole is part of me or I see as something way more important than we talk about. And clothes are part of that. And I wasn't getting any acting work. I couldn't really be anyone but myself, I realised. I was quite a rubbish actor. And <laughs> I studied theatre for two years and I was living in East London in Shoreditch, when magazines were still royalty, you know, if you managed to work for ID magazine or um, Days and Confused, which were all located, their HQs around the corner, then, you know, you're, you're, you were the coolest thing ever. And I was 21 with a lot of energy and a lot of vintage shops around me. So I thought I could be a stylist. And it's a time when we, a lot of us were partying. I know there's been a resurgence in this discussion around indie sleaze. I don't mm. know, there's like an Instagram account which deems supposedly the years of 2006 to 2012 in a certain area of London. And there's, it also went to New York and, and I think like, I, I don't know, like around um, in specific scenes, which is like club kids. So it drew, this particular scene drew from different references. It was when there was quite a lot of electro-crash music. There was a really fun queer scene. Um, it, there was boombox happening in London where all the fashion peeps would go and really kind of exercise this kind of nouveau, neuromantic image. And I, I was, again, just in awe of it. Having been a drama school kid, it felt similar mm -hmm. in terms of showing off yeah. and having a good time. And that's why I ended up working in fashion for a bit because it was just lol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I suppose I grew up in kind of rural Scotland in Fife <laughs> and that wasn't uh, anywhere near us, but we, we dreamt of it. I mean, this is obviously, I'm talking about the, the 80s I'm talking about mm. now. But that was a huge point in, you know, revolutionary sort of fashions and so on. And it was post-punk as well. So we obsessed about um, Vivian Westwood and yeah. Malcolm McLaren and so on initially. And then Red or Dead and all of that stuff. And um, as soon as I had any pocket money as it was then and any access to a city, it would be buying creepers or buying like wild clothes, which you literally couldn't get. In that joy, that real beauty found in a garment 
and saving up for a piece to, you know, almost peacock feather amongst your, your, your crew on a night out. I hope that that still exists. It definitely still exists. My girlfriend exists yeah. completely. Yes. She, she literally ponders for hours over and tries on different things to I get the that. right um, outfit before going out. Fantastic. She, she always looks amazing as well. So, um, But she, she loves that and, and is, is younger than me, but sort of like from that generation of like, it's got to be just right for the night. And also a little bit of peacocking in a, in a sort of humble, nice way. But it's fun. It's catwalking. It's... it's- a lifestyle it's not just um a style it's it's showing that you care and it is expression yeah and it's funny uh, you may not you you've re- referred to whiskey as a sort of um rural drink which i think you're absolutely right about but it increasingly is going hand in hand with more sort of city culture i mean people will come to the the society and have drams and so on but just in bars just mm. in general bars i think people are now rather than having their you know, beers and wines and so on, they're quite often going for, and not just the cooking whiskey, you know, something really nice that goes with the outfit, that goes with the, you know, the night out. It's just something Epicurean, you know. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one of the reasons why I've gotten into single malt whiskey, apart from it being delicious and so on, is that it's, it's people who want something more out of life. You know, you can wear, you know, jeans and a T-shirt and, or whatever smart casual will be, but you can also go the extra you know, nine yards and dress up, mm. mess up. And, um, <laughs> and, and and instead of having a sort of boring drink, you can have something that's like, wow. Um, so, yeah, to, to bring it back to what we're talking about. Mm. And, and, yeah, well, exciting times, though. And so you were born in Birmingham. Yeah. Uh, you moved to London. Um, you know, having that early life in London as well, I mean, it's, it will have made an indelible mark on you and a great place to be, I suppose. I think so, and I think being a kid, which I was, I had such giant eyes. I just always looked around me and I was so influenced by noise and music and the chatter. Like, my mum was a single parent by this point and we lived on a very specific street, you know, within a community of different sorts of people that relied on each other and spoke and had committee meetings and gossiped and laughed and danced and had arguments and it was all very exciting. And I just loved the multiplicity within that, the different experiences from such a young age was really important to me. And yeah, I, again, I like the sounds of life. So during lockdown, I remember thinking, why can't I hear anyone playing music? Why, you know, is it only when we're coming to our balconies or our front doors to clap for the NHS do I hear this kind of rapturous celebration, let's say, of life? Whereas I really miss that kind of early 90s London thing, which might still be there, I don't know. And I definitely tried to do in my Marchmont flat in Edinburgh. But I remember this kind of Jamaican dub essence to South London, particularly in the summer times when we weren't distracted by screens. You know, I I didn't have a mobile phone until many years later. And we were bored and we were in parks and we were walking down urban streets and we would just hear this kind of, like, this reggae or dub sound. Um, 
Some it, of my favorite music in the world. Yeah, and it's it's like for me, it's a little bit like medicine. Mm. My girlfriend's from Bristol, and the, um, Bristol is is a big reggae town as mm. well. A huge dub dubstep, drum and bass, and and roots reggae. Um, and yeah, it's it's whenever we go down to visit her folks, uh, I'm just I just go like yeah yeah yeah, let's go down that. Street. I want to spend some more time in Bristol. I haven't. I've done a bit of work there, but I always meet really interesting folk from there, it's, and I know that there's a, like a very cool Caribbean side to it. Definitely, it's a proper bass town, you know. Mm. Um, in some ways, similar to Edinburgh. There's, um, I mean, very hilly for a start, but in some ways, in some ways, completely different. But um, there's a real, there's always been a real growing up, and you know, in my teens and twenties, Edinburgh had a, and still does have a real affinity to hip hop, drum and bass, reggae, you know, black music in general, yeah. basically. And um, and I mean, Bristol's, you know, it's one of the epicenters of it. I think. Yeah, it really is, and I don't know. Like sometimes it comes down to the simplicity of where people like to rave. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. People love to rave in Bristol. They yeah. get it. They want to lose themselves to beats. And I think that that is very cool. Yeah. And it, well, it's, it's kind of, it's not even just cool. It, it's, for me, it's an integral part of life. It, so I always joke that disco is my religion. And it's not necessarily just the sound of disco. It's the fact that it's a, a genre it's about flamboyance, it's about togetherness, it's about freedom, it's about hope. So yeah, I feel like music is so important. There's something that I've read a little quote um, from you um, recently saying that, uh, you know, you have to work hard on your sunny disposition. Yeah. That, that you, you, you... People see me as a positive person mm. and I try my damnedest to be like mm. that, but it can be hard. It's a political act, almost, is what you were saying. Do you want to describe that a little bit? I think so. I think as I've become an adult, finally, I think it's taken me ages to become a grown-up, but I think I might be one. (laughs) (laughs) The inner child lives, but at the same time, I think I might just about be at 37, an adult. And what comes with that for me is like a real reflection on where we're all at and by proxy I am politicized that the way I live has to become to me political because there is so much injustice or there is so much to be upset about for example there just is and I am not the type of person to be able to completely close my eyes from that so um, I could be completely consumed in that doom or the fear or I could choose to inhabit or be around or surround myself in things that uplift me. And I think in a world, particularly in a Western society, where we're very used to moaning mm-hmm. and being negative and focusing on all the shit, um, I think it's, it, it, for me, it feels personally, and I say political with a small p, but like political thing to say, ah, there's still so much to laugh about, to live for, to dance for. So come on, that's where we actually create great change. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I have to say, I, I think the default position in the West uh, has been for many years, certainly of certain generations, not so much my yeah. parents and grandparents and so on, but uh, to, to moan about what's going on I in, in their lives. I can't stand moaning. I just, 
I moan, don't get me wrong. I'm yeah, of course, everybody is within but... the human disposition, as we, you know, like, we're humans. Moaning and letting off steam and letting it out and, you know, it's almost like a sort of, like, degree of grieving, isn't it? But at the same time, oh, my God. I really, I really, I love joy. <laughs> and I think it can be found everywhere. I really do. And it comes in like the strangest times and in with the strangest you know if we open up our eyes to it so um yeah, yeah I do moaning becomes very boring I do, I do think it is without sounding too hippie-ish or whatever about it i do think <laughs> it's like turn, turning your negativity into positive it's positivity is is a major thing to do and actually instead of just going about everything like trying to see the goods and and if not changing your life so that you i are, think there's that yeah, it's yeah. that it's like being open to change if you need it I or enjoying what you've got Gemma of all the podcasts so far that we've done out of all the malts and music this one's definitely the most you know <laughs> spiritual which I'm quite enjoying I have to say uh, let's move on to our fourth and final dram uh, that one actually I was finished George Benson would be proud oh, it was smooth wow. did, you, did you almost go I kind of it? wish my dad was here and I'm missing him now because he's really good fun and he would have enjoyed that my dad too. Oh, um, to, so. to dads. We should have a clink on that. Yeah, okay, to dads. <laughs> great dads. To dads, to great dads. Um, so, our fourth and final dram is Mountain Bothy Morning, which is lightly peated in the flavour profile. It's a 10-year-old Speyside, of course, I've said that. It's 59.4%. Um, here are some of the tasting notes. Whisperings of smoke on the nose, like a distance meerschaum pipe or rosemary on bonfire embers. Hints of Turkish delight, again. Treacle, licorice, savlon and clove. Savlon, that's a good one. I'm going to wait until <laughs> get a bit of savlon out of my whiskey. I'm sorry if it's like uncouth to laugh, but it's funny. <laughs> yeah. The palate finds soft suggestions of peat smoke, cinders and ash, sherbet lemons and roast pork with five spice powder rub. The reduced nose suggests a poker <laughs> chips with vinegar or cleaning out a mountain bothy in the morning. Cold fire, uh, leather boots, plastic cagoules, black bun and foamy shrimps. I mean, okay, they're hedging, <laughs> they're hedging their bets a little bit here. There's lots of different um, tasting uh, notes there, but... But that sounded like a poem about Scotland, if you think about the most Scottish things about Scotland. <laughs> it's a lot of those things, and I, I would definitely like invite anybody that is listening or or enjoying this from afar that hasn't experienced some of those like really kind of more kind of visceral elements of this country to just get involved because suddenly cold makes sense yeah wrap up it's like you know, look at the scandinavians it's exactly the same with the scots um or except the Nor- they have sauna culture and we don't and i need to introduce it because they get that right and it yeah. helps balance out the chilliness you mentioned the sauna earlier on the best sauna i ever had was a, a homemade sauna in finland Lovely. Uh, out in the middle of absolute nowhere we were seeing hairs like about wow. sort of three foot white hairs and with incredible ears just scampering around it was are you the, sure were you hallucinating no, I, I wasn't hallucinating no no hallucination uh, hallucinatory drugs were taken it was it was pure uh, nature we were, mm. they, these friends of ours built this sauna in the middle of nowhere and it was right next to um, the, fin- the Finnish version of a fjord so it was seawater yeah. 
but it was so cold that the seawater had frozen over by the edges. So we would, we'd go into the sauna, which was the hottest sauna I'd ever been in, mm. and then we'd run down this jetty and jump into the almost icy seawater. Brilliant. And then back, and we I think we did about six or seven times, and then we were completely exhausted. But it was one of the most visceral experiences. Gemma Kearney, you're going to do, you're going to introduce that in the Highlands of Scotland. Don't you think it would be really good though? I mean, I, I mentioned that place that I went to in the Cairngorms, which did have a sauna. But I think sauna culture is really relevant to the the temperature of Scotland. And if you go over to Scandinavia. The Nordic appreciation for hot and cold is amazing. It's so sophisticated and I think it makes for a quality of life that we're missing out on. It's really good for your skin. Absolutely, well. it's really good for everything. Yeah, it's really good for everything. Good for the heart, if, if anything else. Um, so let, let's move on. We're on to our final dram here. So this lightly peated mountain bothy morning. Which right. You've got your, your mountain bothy and you've got your, your Gemma Kearney sauna just oh, outside. Yeah. Um, we're getting the cold together, people. Right, we're, Don't getting, worry. we're getting the peat on the nose here for sure. It's, I mean, it's lightly peated. It's not, it's not medicinal. It's not got that. TCP. I'm not sure I could drink that in the morning. <laughs> no, really. I have friends of mine who are um, absolutely, you know, whiskey connoisseurs and nerds. They love their really heavily peated whiskies. Okay. And a previous guest on the podcast, Olaf Furness. That's that was his sort of epiphany yeah. about um, whiskey was Lafroig and Lagavulin, Ardbeg, those really heavily peated. This isn't it quite in that in that ballpark. It's lightly peated. It's nice on the nose. It's still got a fruitiness. I like it. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm going in for a sip now. Second fill. It's making me yearn to be somewhere that has grass with frosted tips. It's mm. making me think about structure of a bothy and oh, oh now i just want to just this tastes like a bothy yeah i totally i totally if i could if i could blend a bothy down and drink it <laughs> someone was telling me the other day they had a uh, bloody mary that supposedly had parma ham in it and they couldn't find the parma ham so they realized that the parma ham had probably been liquidized yeah. to go into it and i thought that was a bit too far uh, yeah, maybe, but <laughs> but if if you could liquidise a, a body and turn it into <laughs> yeah. a drink, it's this. That is one of the nicest PT whiskies I've ever tasted in my life, and I'm not over. It's really lovely. It's ap- and if if you're you're kind of drawn to peat, but you find the really medicinal ones a little bit too strong, this is a a perfect balance because it has a fruitiness and and a sort of lightness to it. Hmm. Oh, your, wow. fi- your final piece of music then you've gone for PJ Morton and Yeba with How Deep Is Your Love live yeah um, and obviously it's the Bee Gees song uh, <laughs> but it's their version I, until until you chose this I hadn't actually heard this so it was it was good to, to and isn't in. there a take that version oh there probably is yeah, yeah I think yeah. there don't, I don't think mention them there is the Bee Gees yeah, yeah fair 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 enough um this is a beautiful version of this song. It's really romantic and soulful and I don't know. I think like again, you know, if we're going to go on a hippie note, which I'm absolutely fine to be. <laughs> I'm fine to be. And a, you're recently, a well, sort of fairly recently fallen in love as well. So you're <laughs> 
You're, it's been nearly two years. <laughs> you're not quite at the uh, I'm sick of him yet. <laughs> not yet. The, the world's <laughs> open back up. We can distract ourselves with whiskey tastings. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, no, you made me all blushy and like forget what I was yeah, saying. Yeah, you're talking about <laughs> romance and love. It's... Okay, so this particular version of this song is really welcoming. It's It's about... I don't know, a good love song invites you into love. And as we were just discussing about the idea of mood and changing your mood and feeling like you want to be in a certain mood, we, again, as a society of potential moaners or in the time that's really, you know, quite hard, whether it's the climate crisis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to move into like the idea of love, like loving yourself, loving your work, loving your body, you know, um, I think it's really, really good. And we need to be reminded. And one of the simplest ways of being reminded how to move into love is a great love song. A great love song is magic. Yeah, well, this is undoubtedly a great song. And it's a great version as well. Um, PJ Morton is, well, he, I think he started as keyboard player with, the, with Maroon 5. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, and he's a producer, he's a songwriter, he's, but he has an incredible voice as well. But I think it's Yeba, the guest vocalist on yeah. this. She's just stunning on this, I yeah. think, as well. Um, as I say, you introduced me. People. You introduced me to this track, this version of this track, and it's it's it's, it's you can, you can feel that that even if they're not romantically involved, you can hear the romance between the two. And that's just the best. I love romance. I just yeah. do. Yeah. I think that we should all be romantics. Yeah, I think you're right. And this, weirdly enough, I can, I, I mean, okay, maybe I'm you know pulling it, you know, clutching at straws, I should say. Um, you know, this is I can I can imagine a, a little whirlwind romance in a bothy. <laughs> oh my god! We're drinking this whiskey and listening to that song. Um, Gemma, going back into your life and career and so on, of which you know it's we we'd need two or three podcasts to even scratch the surface. I think I would be so exhausted by the end of that. Yeah, I mean I am pretty tired. <laughs> but you've you've done you've done you know Radio One One Extra uh, Four Radio Six Music Scala Radio Radio Four, <laughs> and then you've done TV Gla- BBC's Glastonbury. Uh, what was that series you were doing for Sky Arts recently? Landmark. Landmark. Landmark you've done. Uh, all you know, uh, New Year's Eve with Grimmy. You've done all sorts and series of different things. You, you apply your skill to so many different things, but you've also got your own production company, uh, Boom Shakalaka. Absolutely, pronounced right because whenever we've made a Radio Four program, I mean, not, not every single time, but quite often, yeah, it's Boom Shakalaka. Oh, really? At the, you know, they boom do the announcement at I the mean, end. I, I, you know, I, I just want that's that's something that you know I've, I've been saying. My friends and I've been saying for years. I don't know where it, where did it first come from. I looked it up on the Urban Dictionary. Apparently, it's like a verbal way of describing when you um, in basketball, if you like get it in the net, and this is like a really triumphant boom shakalaka. Goal. I don't even know what you call that. Like a score, it'd be like boom shakalaka, laka, 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 laka. Oh right, because it rattles off the um, yeah off the, the hoop. Yes, yeah. but I think it applies to so much because you can actually when you listen out for it, hear it in so many references of so many old songs. I think um, Little Richard's got a boom shakalaka. Like it, and Apache Indian. Obviously, if we're going to go back to the nineties, we're going to time travel. <laughs> boom shakalaka. Like it's yeah. yeah. There's so many different versions of 
that phrase and I love it. Was, was the Fringe and the Edinburgh Festival coming up here, was that kind of another little reason to move here? Was Definitely. Because sort of... two years later I was here for an entire month because we only did a 10-day run of that show with the same artists, the same writers, Brigitte Aphrodite and Quiet Boy, who you should definitely check out if this resonates and you kind of like multidisciplinary work that has a punk edge. And um, they'd written a musical called Parakeet, which was a coming of age tale about three young people growing up in Margate that start a punk band and try and save the world. And we took that to the fringe in a bigger scale. So we'd learnt from the kind of smaller, uh, DIY version to doing a bigger show at Summer Hall and we were here for the entire month and I lived in Edinburgh and I was working on the book festival I interviewed Benjamin Zephaniah which was such an honour oh yeah he's a oh, hero oh it was so so wonderful and also was exec producing Parakeet and just enjoying Edinburgh life I was going off to the Turkish bath down in Portobello um, swimming in the sea just sort of sizing it out like seeing whether it felt good and it really did and I think that I was sort of planting the seeds for what was going to come a couple of years later yeah well it seems I well I obviously think you've made the right move up to Edinburgh um just quickly before we we sort of bring the podcast to an end you you know as well as radio and theatre and tv and and well-being and wellness and all sorts of things activism that you're interested in you've started writing as yeah. well yeah so you have a book published and you're working on another one i'm glad that you've you done s- your research i'm so impressed you got, I'm, I'm glad you know more about my career than i do well quite possibly <laughs> uh, i'm a pro remember you're great <laughs> but it's like you know you the you, the fact that you've spared a bit of time to come and do this is great. I hope the whiskey hasn't like knocked Whiskey's you off your lovely. Uh, uh, you, but <laughs> but but you're 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 writing a book right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us about your first book because it's again it's. Well, I'd have to actually. It's look called at the, the Immortal that. Sisterhood. That's the new one, right? Yes, the yeah. last one was open. Yeah. A toolkit for how magic and messed up life can yes, be. Yes. Yeah. Right. So tell us a little bit about book number one, and then you can tell us what you're writing okay. right now. So book number one is essentially a guide to life, which sounds really over the top, and it kind of is. I didn't really know how deep that would be until I got the publishing deal, but I was very passionate. It wasn't just because I wanted to tick a bucket list of writing a book. I really had, I felt like I had experienced youth culture having worked in One Extra and Radio One for so long. And I wound up my Radio One career presenting the surgery for two years, even though I've done so many different shows on that station, honestly, like... Don't even research it. It's exhausting. I was exhausted. Early breakfast, afternoons, weekend breakfast. breakfast. Oh, it was epic and ridiculous. But the final two years of being on Radio 1, the biggest youth station in the UK, etc., blah, blah, I was there as an agony aunt all of a sudden and hearing about young people's issues. And I felt really compelled to kind of wrap up my time in youth culture because I felt like I was ready to move on and look at arts and culture in general but I wanted to to kind of leave a love letter to life and also offer this kind of olive branch from an like an older sister kind of perspective to younger people and it it resulted in the form of a book because I love the idea of something tangible something you can hold a best friend that can be on your 
on your bookshelf. It was fully illustrated so that you can dip in and dip out. It's not a particularly academic read. It is, it is um, a resource book as well because it tells you like further reading lists or organisations that might be able to help mm. you with certain issues. And it really, it goes from your heart, your mind, your body and soul, your world and your future. It really tries to at least have a few lines in there of different things that we might come across. Not only as teenagers, I think we often say, oh, you know, when we're teenage stuff, adolescence is where it all goes crazy. I don't really think it stops. I think we're always reassessing, but we might become... Certainly hasn't stopped with me. Yeah, we might become more experienced, at least, of of, of some of the things that... you know, when it's the first time you're going through stuff as a teenager, whereas when you become a grown-up, it might be like the second, third or fourth. <laughs> so where are you going with the new book then? It's more... Because you have... Uh, you made a documentary, um, What the F? The Story of Feminism. <laughs> um, so The Immortal Sisterhood, where mm. does that take you? So, yeah, Open is a resource for young adults, and then The Immortal Sisterhood is... <laughs> A resource for myself, if anything. Um, it's about women. It's about our connection. And it's about the stories that have been written out of history, sometimes because they make people feel uncomfortable, sometimes because of unconscious bias and just, like, the racism of the Western world. We don't talk about some people, but we do others. And it's just expressing, like, my route to womanhood through not only my own stories but others and things that women overcome and have resisted again and again and again and how actually like it feels you know that kind of that phrase that we stand on others shoulders I really feel that but to make it a bit more woo-woo we're perhaps like holding the hands and we're, we're by the sides of not only the women living now, but the women of the past and the future. And I, I really, it makes me feel emotional, privileged, honored, proud, strong, um, to be able to tell some of these stories through my eyes. Uh, and it's, it's proving really fascinating. Well, uh, researching something like that has got to be fascinating and it sounds like a brilliant read. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> and I know this podcast could go on for another We've five gone hours. there. Oh, we've, my we've goodness. We've gone there. And, but I've said it before, we've like barely scratched the surface of what you've done and what you've achieved and so on and what you continue to achieve. Uh, a pleasure uh, chatting to you, Gemma. And uh, like, how deep is your love? Your last, uh, <laughs> you know, I can tell that your love is deep. It's deep. It's deep. And, and it's an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thanks for taking part Thank in Maltz you. Music. And yeah. Cheers. 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 Slange. Slange of art. Mm, Slange of art.